I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Uh, What we're doing tonight is an addition, again, to Jesus in the Old Testament. This is actually like part 23 in that series. This is going to be going through a messianic psalm. And while I haven't taught this series in quite a while, um, I will, for people watching online, I'll put links in the video description for you to click if you'd like to watch the uh, the whole series, which I, of course, highly recommend, but wouldn't I? It's my series. Um, but what we're doing tonight is Psalm 16. It's a messianic psalm. That is, it's about Messiah. It's about Jesus. It's about the coming one. It's written about a thousand years before Jesus shows up. And so it has some pretty big significance there. Um, it's poetic. It's very poetic. And so we're going to cover it with that in mind. But it's often seen, often seen, although I will disagree with this, it's often seen as the only place in the Old Testament where the resurrection of Jesus is predicted. I'm going to explain that towards the end. I'll share some other places as well. But here's the plan for tonight. We're going to read the whole psalm just straight through. Then we're going to go through it two more times. Not just reading it, but studying it. We're going to study it once as it relates to David and how it applies to our lives and how we look at it as simply being a psalm. By doing that, we're going to sort of unpack the meaning of the psalm, understand it in context. Then I'm going to move more quickly back through it a third time. The third time is to show you the messianic significance of this passage, of this psalm. Rather than just doing Psalm 16, verse 10, and that's what most people do. They just look at one verse. We're looking at the whole psalm to understand its messianic implications, how it refers to Jesus. It's like a typology or foreshadowing of Christ, um, but we'll also get theology and personal growth, and it should be wonderful and blessed because it's God's word. So um, here we go, looking at Psalm 16. And like I said, I'm in the ESV translation for tonight's study. It says, beginning at the beginning here, which is before verse 1, it has this part here, which is part of the actual original text of the psalm. It says, a miktam of David. So, a miktam of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my, cho- my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. And so we we read it before we study it, and if you're looking for tips for your own home Bible study, this is it. Read it multiple times. There's a fantastic, simple tip. Read the passage multiple times in your own home study. I like to read it, listen to it, go read it again. You know, when I'm taking a walk or a little break from my study time, just put it on audio and hear the passage again. You know, like the repetition's really good. As as my old teacher, Carl Westerlin said, repetition reinforces, repetition reinforces, repetition. You know the rest. So here we are. Let's start at the beginning. Psalm 16, it says it's a miktam of David. Miktam is just a musical term, most likely. That's what we think it probably is. So it's talking about like the kind of song it is. 
um, written probably by David. In fact, I'd say it's definitely written by David. Um, then verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And I want you to just immediately take in the gravity of this. Like, don't miss it. David, in this psalm, as we read on towards the end of the psalm, we realize he speaks all these wonderful blessings, and then he speaks about it in the face of possible death, right? I'm not going to be left to Sheol. This is the idea. That's the grave. We'll come back to that. I'm not going to be left to not just the physical grave, but the place of death, the power of death to, over, to overtake me and overhold me. Um, so David speaks of his impending death in this psalm, and he does that a lot in the psalms, actually. I don't know if you noticed. Um, how much the sky is actually falling in David's life and he's writing these psalms in those situations. But he has a refuge in God even in the face of that. A refuge is like a tower or a city. right? A refuge could be, I say a tower or a city because a refuge could literally be a tower. Like you run into a tower and you've got these thick, powerful walls that protect you from the enemy. To get to you now, they have to come through the tower. So the tower is your refuge. As strong as it is, it's like an extension of your own strength now. You're resting in the strength of this other thing. There's also cities of refuge in the scripture. A city of refuge was a different kind of thing altogether. A city of refuge wasn't necessarily a powerful city. It was a safe city. The Levites' cities were the cities of refuge. In the Jewish law, if you had accidentally killed someone, manslaughter, so you accidentally ran over them with your ox, like, but you didn't realize they were sleeping in your field or something like that, right? Like it was total accident. You didn't mean to do it. But yet, there be an avenger of blood or something, especially in that culture. This isn't so much what God's saying to do, but in the culture, some family member of that person is going to come after you. And so to hide from them, to, you would flee to the city of refuge. You, so you did something wrong, but it was, wasn't murder. It was manslaughter. So you'd go to the city of refuge, and there you would hide. And you had to stay there until the death of the high priest, who we know pictures Jesus Christ. And we've talked about that in this series before. And so the death of the high priest, when he dies, you can flee the city of refuge. But if you leave the city of refuge before the high priest dies, then you're no longer under the protection. And so I think this is just a beautiful picture of of Christ being the one that we hide in. And upon his death, we're released from the guilt of our sin or from the the death that's on our way, on on its way to meet us. So our refuge, um, however, and David's refuge isn't a place, it's a hymn. Right? He says, God, you're my refuge. It's a, it's a personal thing. You are my refuge. In fact, this will be throughout the psalm. It's incredibly personal. It's very relational. It's not just about who God is and what God does, but it's about who God is to the, to the author of the psalm, who God is in our relationship with him. Our refuge isn't a place, it's a him. This is uh, why I think Jesus in John 14, 1, one of my favorite verses, it says, um, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And he's answering our troubled hearts with believing, not just belief, no, belief in him. Like it's a personal, relational thing. You will find refuge right there in God. God is your refuge. He not only provides you refuge, Lord, help me, save me, but he is my refuge. And that's a different thing. It's a different thing. It's a better thing. Life uh, presents us with, in case you hadn't noticed, insurmountable obstacles. Hardships that are too much for our hearts, too much for our, our minds even. And uh, stuff that's just, it's so rough that you realize that when you were a kid, you just didn't have a clue. You know, and you're like, I didn't even know. I didn't know that this is what trials were. I was like, why are people complaining? And then I went through it. And I went, oh. It's like stuff that words, there aren't vocabulary words for this. For the kind of thing I've, I've got going on or have gone through. The thing is, I think for those who do not have the Lord, 
what is the refuge in those insane times of life? Like, where's my refuge when life is just overwhelmingly bad and it's just, I can't handle it. And it seems doom and gloom and I seem to be in the face of the grave or the face of like the pit or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what you do without the Lord here. And I, I mean real, real tragedy, your real mortality of your, of your own life or of somebody else's. But for Christians, I have like an actual answer for the worst possible moments of life. Like the hope of, of God, whether I emotionally feel it or not, I can, I can even just intellectually go, well, actually, I mean, the Lord really is the answer for this problem, technically. Maybe my heart's not on that page, but I know he is. Whereas I don't even know, I mean, I don't know if you've been to them before, but I've been to the, to the funerals of, of non-believers, especially working at my old job, releasing doves at funerals. It's one of the part-time things I did when I was doing ministry. And, um, and the platitudes that come out and the poems that are read, because they're looking for, and I'm not insulting them, it's just they're looking for, to provide some kind of hope or help, but it's just emptiness. But in Christ, we have actual help and hope so that we can truly say, like with Psalm 62, 8, that's the verse behind me on the wall, one of my favorite verses for sure. Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times. All times. No matter how bad, no matter how rough, no matter how hard it's been, no matter what's gone on, trust in him at all times. Oh, people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And it's just, it's a huge encouragement to me. I think we just need to observe we're not just reading the text, we're like taking it in, right? Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And this is my prayer in hard times, and it should be all of ours, I think. God, I actually take refuge in you, in you, in who you are. Not in what's going on, not in knowing that it won't, this won't happen and that won't happen, but just in who you are. I just trust you, and that's powerful. But then it leads us to the question, like, how do I do that, though? How do I take refuge in God? So I was asking myself this as I'm studying. I'm like, what would be like a three-step plan? Right, do the A, B, C, and then boom, you're taking refuge in God. And I don't know if I have a three-step plan for you. Uh, but I think there's something in the direction of that that we get from Scripture. And it's the idea that taking refuge in God seems closely related to the, to the decision to trust him. The decision to trust him. And I think that our hearts understand this sort of intuitively. Um, I remind myself of who he is, right, in his goodness, in his character, and in his power. I remind myself of what he's done in, in uh, delivering his son up for me. You know, he who gave up his only son, won't he give us all things? Scripture says, won't he take care of me? And also what he has promised. What has he promised us? Eternal life. And so just choosing to trust him where you're just saying, I don't understand the situation. I don't know what I'm going through. I can't comprehend it. I can't feel my way out of it. I can't think my way out of it. You, you need to just trust in him. And that's how you take refuge in him. It's just the act of trust. It's just that simple step of uh, choosing faith in Christ. Because either he delivers you from this thing or he delivers you through it. I mean, some, sometimes God saves you from the fire and sometimes he saves you right through the fire, if you know what I mean. Sometimes you go right in the middle of it and you, you plow straight through the whole thing and um, we just need to choose to trust. I like what Psalm 56.3 says, whenever I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. That's interesting, huh? Not, I never have fear. I never have anxiety. I never have issues. It's like, no, when I do, I put my trust in you. It was, it's like a, an act of will in that moment of hardship. And that's how I think we take refuge in him, at least one big part of it. Because there's Psalms, as we read through the Psalms, it's, it's this poetic 
you know, book, the whole book's poetry. But there's lots of times where there's psalms where David's like, or whoever the psalmist is, they're complaining about the situations of life. And as you get to the end of the psalm, if you're paying attention, you'll realize things didn't even get better. Like sometimes they get better. He's like, oh, you will. Oh, you answered me. Oh, it's better. Other times it's like, this is terrible, Lord. And then at the end of the psalm, he just goes, yet I place my hope in you. I choose to trust you. And so we see him doing this continually. And I think the psalms is written for us to learn the same habits. And I think we could add um, that there's many of these times in the Psalms too where, where things are terrible and he says, yet I will trust in you. And then he declares some future victory, right? For God will deliver me. For God will help me. For God is, is going to get me out of this thing. And all we have to do to really understand this is add the word eventually. Eventually. And so li- life is like this. I mean, Imagine if you're in a fight with someone and they've got you on the ground, yet somehow you know you're going to win eventually. So then you get up and you think, this is the, this is the one. You take your blow and nope, they just smack you back down even harder. And you're like, but I know eventually I'm going to win, you know? And you get up and you keep going and you keep going. And it has to do with that, like, what do I know about eventually? And that helps sustain us in, our, in our t- the things we're going through today, I think. So verse 1, it summarizes the sense of dependency and hope. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I'm resting in you. I'm trusting in you. I'm, I'm, I'm safe in you. And it's extremely personal. And then verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And I know that I'm, I'm saying this is messianic. We're going to get to all that. But you just have to soak in the meaning of it first, right? I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. This is just a straight personal affirmation, and I think we can skip right past it. Okay, I say to the Lord, you're my Lord. Like, blah, blah, blah. Just boilerplate psalm stuff. And that's not really the case. I remember when I got married, looking at Allison and saying, you're my wife. And what that meant to me. And to someone else looking on who's like not aware of the relationship, they'll be like, Mike's an idiot. He just, he just states the obvious, like, what, do you not know this? Does she not know this? Do you think she's done? Like, what is going, what's wrong with you? Or you get it. Either you get it or you don't, right? If you have someone in your family that you just love and respect so much and you look at them and you're like, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my dad, you're my child. And, it's, and it means so much to you. And David hears like, you are my Lord. And I think he just puts a smile on his face. You're my Lord. You're my Lord. When I was studying for this, I stopped and I just said to the Lord, you're my Lord. And I was like, yeah, that's what that means. Um, It's more of a heart thing, perhaps, than a head thing. And he goes on to say, I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. And this makes me immediately think of John 6, verse 68, where Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And the idea is there's like, where else am I going to go, Lord? Like, I don't have another, I don't have a backup plan. I don't have another option. There's nowhere else really to go. I need you, and you're my, um, you're my everything here. But there's another element of this that I think is interesting. And so let me just hypothesize with you about this possible meaning. I have no good apart from you. Um, philosophers like to talk about what's called, like, the good. And they use it in different, different terminologies. But one of them, at least if I'm understanding correctly, is they use it in reference to, like, just the fact that there is something objectively good. Like there is, goodness is like a real thing. It actually is valid as opposed to it just being pragmatic. Like on kind of a naturalistic, atheistic worldview, you'd be sort of saying, 
I call things good, but in reality, they're not exactly good or evil. I'm just saying things that I find helpful to my goals and not helpful to my goals. You know, I wouldn't really call them good. But here, God is the good, as some put it. He is the good. Like, goodness finds its truth in the objective nature of God. And that's why there is such a true thing as goodness, in which we can measure, you know, badness against. And say, okay, well, that's, that violates the standard. God is the standard of all that is good. He, it's, um, it's, this is, so in other words, I have no goodness apart from you could actually be a philosophical statement. Like, if there wasn't no God, there would be no genuine moral goodness at all. Which means all goodness and everything that's good flows from him, which is what James says. In James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So this is the idea that all good is from God. If it's good, it's from God. And it doesn't mean that everybody who's doing something good is doing it because God's making them or something. Rather, the, the goodness of the thing they're doing is only good because of God. So it's kind of philosophical, and I think it's pretty neat stuff. God is then the source, if, if I'm right here. He's the source of it. He's the source of goodness in creation. Um, anything good that you see that you're like, wow, that's, it's not just pleasant. It's not just appropriate in, or, or useful. It's good. Boy, that's a good thing. Like I, look, I go and I go, marriage is like a good thing. It's just a good. That comes from God. Or I look at moral goodness, the moral goodness of loving or of giving instead of taking or of offering self-sacrifice, being kind, that that comes from God. So the goodness of that ties back to God, whether or not the person doing it acknowledges it. This means then that I, I have no good apart from God, like in any way, shape or form. All the goodness of my life, even if I'm in rebellion to God throughout my life, anything good in my life, you know, traces back to God and his goodness. So that to say I have no goodness apart from you is just like to say the most obvious truth of reality. I like how C.S. Lewis put it. You may have heard this quote from C.S. Lewis. I, I, I understand it's often quoted wrong, and I understand this is the right way. You can research it yourself and see if I'm right about that or not. But, but here's the quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And that's like when you start to realize God isn't just a, con- a concept. He's the grounding of all, co- all of these other concepts. He is God. And it all traces back to him. Not only ma- the material world wouldn't exist without him, but even goodness itself wouldn't be a thing. Wouldn't be. So that's verse 2. I thought it was pretty neat. Verse 3, it says, um, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. So now he rejoices in the saints. Um, who are they? Um, these are like the set-apart ones, the holy ones. Um, you could refer to them as that. The idea is that they're sanctified to God. They belong to God. They're separated for him. And they're separated also from a world that's in, generally in rebellion to God. So they're the ones that are doing God's things, God's ways kind of thing. Or at least that they're called to. They're supposed to. Um, in David's day, this is easy. This would be who? The Jews, right? The Israelites. This is the Israelites he's talking about. And here's, I think, the significance of this. He's like, God, I see you as, as the, the ultimate good. And all of my life I see in the light of who you are and what you've done. And you're the, you're the center of my worldview is what he's saying. Like, you know, I have no goodness apart from you. And then, he, then because of this, he's like, and your people I love. So this is kind of like what we read in 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 
So there's a natural outgrowth of a genuine relationship with God where you love God's people as a result of your love for God. It's kind of like when you have a friend and you just naturally care about their kids. There's just, of course, the love I have for you transfers to your children. And so the love I have for God transfers to his children, those who were born of God. There's this natural love for his people. And so I love God, or I care, you know, God's number one to me. The saints that God has called his people, they're they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So Psalm 16 is a man who shows a man whose hope is in the Lord and whose world, at least in his mind, is right side up. His values are right. The things he cares about are right. The kingdom that he's seeking is the correct kingdom, so to speak, um, as opposed to, so often, the, the, the carnal or selfish or sinful lifestyles that people would live. Then in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Uh, the names is probably a reference to other, the names of other gods, not the names of the people, but the names of these other gods. Um, other gods were at the time all over, um, even in Israel, there were false gods, quite a number of them. Um, it was said that they had multiplied gods. There were quite a few false gods. I don't mean to say that they're like real beings. Um, behind these idols ultimately is, are demonic things going on. But there were the, the idols and there was different names for them and there were different practices and habits of worshiping these false uh, false things. So they had these other gods. Now, these aren't just different names for God. This is something we should really understand, too, because there's like a continued rise of paganism going on. Um, people, all, all in all right now, people are becoming more religious, not less. They like to say I'm not religious, but by the actual dictionary meaning of the word, everyone's becoming more religious, not less. There's a rise in, of secularism in certain smaller segments, but overall, the world population is becoming more religious. And um, some of this includes uh, paganism and different beliefs and stuff that you're like, wait, what? This is like neo-paganism, they call it. One of these days I'm going to do some stuff on that, I think. But, um, but we have to understand the difference between God, Almighty, the good, the creator, the grounding of all reality, right? Eternal, omnipotent, um, all-loving, all-knowing, all these things, versus these petty, small, finite, weak, fake deities. They're not like God with a different name. It's, it, this is like saying Zeus and God are like the same thing with a different name. I'm like, well, then you don't know what Zeus is or you don't know what God is because they're not the same thing with a different name. They're just really not. Ironically, these small, finite, they're not the grounding of anything, beings that are more like super beings than they are like um, what you think of when you think of God. They're ironically represented by idols. So idols, pieces of wood or something decorated and hammered work and stuff like that all around them, they're represented by these things. And idols themselves, they can't speak, they can't talk, they can't do anything. And that's the, hence the irony. Hence the irony. Uh, this is the case of any, any idolatry. Is idolatry itself, you know, when you start setting up these images, it seems to represent the vacuum that's in my own heart towards God because here I am setting up just imagine this you, you leave your husband and instead you get this you get this you know this doll and you dress it up like your husband and you replace your husband with a doll and you're thinking like I'm good I got this I don't need that guy I got this guy right here and this is kind of what idolatry does I, I, I abandon the true God of creation and I, I substitute it with this with this image 
Um, so other gods, though, are ultimately a symptom of, of a problem, a symptom of a problem, meaning that the idols themselves weren't the problem. It was the symptom of the problem. And Romans 1 talks about this. So I'm going to read through a section in Romans 1. A lot of us are familiar with this, Romans 1, 18 through 25. This passage is like about, hey, what caused idolatry? What was the thing that triggered idolatry? So we'll read through it here, uh, Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They're unrighteous, by unrighteousness, they suppress the truth, sin leading to a blindness or a suppression of truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they're without excuse. This is so interesting, right? You know there's a God, or at least you should, because it's obvious from the existence of creation. That's the point. The existence of God is, is obvious. And as much as in atheist communities, the, the, the constant mantra I hear is there's no evidence for God. There's no evidence for God. And then you present evidence and they go, oh, this, oh those are all fallacious. They're unsound and un, uh, invalid reasoning that just doesn't work. And it's been debunked a billion times and stuff like that. And this is, it's just denial. It's just ultimately denial. When you look carefully and thoughtfully at these things, the evidence for God is ultimately overwhelming. Um, So his invisible, and that's what scripture is telling us here. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is where we see the result of that sin. I'm not going to honor him as God. And not just be aware of him, but honor him as God. I will not be in right relationship with God, submitting my life to him. So then I become darkened. Sin is the thing that causes the, the then symptom, which is the darkness of the mind. So they aren't so aware of God. They aren't like necessarily purposely lying about they, they know God exists. And they're, well, they've been darkened at this point because, because of a result of sin. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So the idea with idols is that I'm not honoring God with my life. I, I, I want sin. I want rebellion in my life. And so God gives me over to those things as an act of judgment. And so then uh, the idolatry comes. And the folly of bending down in front of a false image is in, in itself like an act of judgment against the person who's doing it to show their rebellion against God. This seems to be what we're getting up in scripture here. Um, so he says about these people that he, he won't participate in their, in their worship practices. The drink offerings of blood, he's not going to pour out. He won't take their names on his lips. He says um, that their sorrows are going to multiply. And here's where we add that eventually. He's like, look, life has sorrows. But what the psalmist is saying here is, but their sorrows who hasten after some other God, who replace God with some carnality, some, some idolatry, their sorrows will only multiply. Right? It's the closest to heaven they'll get. Whereas... For us, there's a great hope. Now, you might be like, well, where's the idolatry today, Mike? We don't really seem to have all that much of it going on. And, well, I don't know if you haven't been to a Thai food restaurant recently. but um, I like Thai food, by the way. But, yes, no, there's idolatry is alive and well in the world today. It most certainly is. 
But but what we've often done in the more like secularized countries is we've we've taken the idol out, but we've kept what it represented. So the idol idols that represent lust and idols that seem to represent like material wealth, and so we have materialism. Um, we have uh, the the sexual revolution, wherever that's gone now, <laughs> it's insanity, um, and these things are the outgrowth of the same kind of stuff that leads to idolatry. We just get rid of the image and replace it with a, a, an image of self to worship self and to do what I want to do with my own thing. Then in verse 5 of the psalm, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. My chosen portion in my cup. Uh, the idea here is he's like, the Lord is what I get. He's, he's my portion. When someone's dishing out the food to the family, your portion, your cup. What do I get? I get the Lord. And this is so relational. He's like, God's what I get. Their sorrows are going to multiply, but God, God is what I get. This is so relational. Keep this in mind. It's, it's meant to be about your relationship with God. He's my chosen portion, he says in verse 5. Chosen. He's like, I've chosen the Lord. I've chosen to have God as, the, as, as my goal and the end of my life. And of course, I will receive the fruit of that decision. And he says, you hold my lot. You hold my lot. Uh, I think the idea here is the lot has to do with whatever that portion is, whatever he's going to get in the future. But he says about it, like God, God's holding it. It's secure with God. It's like when you, when you hand over control of your future to, to an entity, say a bank or something like that. They're holding your lot. Well, God's holding that lot. The point is, there's a guarantee that you will receive the things that God has promised you in the future. Eternal life, joy, his very presence forevermore because he's holding on to that thing. He's securing it with his own, uh, with his own word. And then in verse 6, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This idea of the lines have fallen, we think it comes from the idea of using like ropes to mark out a boundary. They use lines, rope, to mark out a boundary like between two, say, two properties. And um, eventually they just came to refer to the lines or the ropes themselves as the property, just the way the use of the word was. So the lines have fallen for me is, um, think of like looking at a map and you're drawing boundary lines on the map. He's saying, hey, it's fallen for me in pleasant, pleasant places. Now, here's where it gets a little bit interesting in the psalm because David... Um, let me explain. The, the tribes of Israel were given lots of inheritance when they entered the land, and it was separated to them different tribes, different sections of the land, right? So they had the lot fell to them in different places. And David was of the tribe of Judah. So the tribe of Judah had like this, this particular section of land. But the Levites, a different tribe, not David, the Levites, they had no land. And the Lord said, I'm your inheritance. But in the psalm, he's talking like right past the inheritance of the physical land. And it sounds like he's the Lord's my portion. I'm inheriting the Lord. And so there's so it's speaking of more than just the land. It seems to be speaking beyond the land. Keep that in mind because we're going to get into that when we get into the messianic side of all this stuff. Because um, David had land. He could see it. Um, but this is different. This is This is bigger than that. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. This is, this is great because it's not enough for you to choose to follow God. I choose God as my portion. I need instructions to follow God. Like I can't just be like, I'll just do whatever I feel and it will be all good. So God instructs me. I need his word. The word tells me what to do, how to process life. It gives me courage, comfort, correction. 
which is the one I need the most oftentimes. Of course, other times it's comfort I need the most. Um, other times it's, it's just data, man. The Lord just needs to tell you things that you need to know. And we get this in his word. Uh, these are like two parallel statements here, like much of the psalm is. A lot of Psalm 16 is parallel statements. The first one's, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. The second, in the night also my heart instructs me. See how they're, they're kind of parallel statements, same kind of concepts being repeated, but they're said in different ways. God gives me counsel. I would think of that as being his word, and this is consistent with what David writes in the psalms. He's, he's delighting in God's word. But when he says, my heart instructs me, that sounds more internal. So this could mean one of two things. It could be that he's speaking about when I'm at nighttime, and this is what he says in Psalm 119, um, uh, I, I meditate on your word while I'm in bed. He's like speaking about meditating. He's, so he is rehashing and working through what scripture says while he's lying in bed. So then it could be my heart instructs me as he's meditating. Or it could refer to God somehow divinely speaking to him internally while, it, while it's the middle of the night. It could refer to that. It could go either way. And he says also in the beginning of verse 7, I will bless, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And that's a good thing to recognize is um, the psalmists uh, often don't miss an opportunity to thank God. Um, they don't, they're not taking things for granted. And that is such a huge thing for us to just, just to be grateful and thankful in our hearts. It's like a spiritual health thing for us. Don't take things for granted. Thank the Lord. Bless him for it. Be appreciative of it. Verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me because he is... At my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This is like a awareness of, it seems, God's presence. In fact, that's the TEV, the different translation says, um, I'm always aware of God's presence instead of I've set the Lord always before me. He's like, I'm always aware of God's presence. This is, again, super relational. This psalm is very much about the relationship between David here and God. And it's a very deep and personal relationship. He's always before me. Christianity is, of course, relational. Sometimes it's hard to communicate this to non-Christians when you, we say things like, I have a religion, not a relationship. I'm, I don't tend to use that phrase because I, while I agree with the relationship part, I disagree with the religion part. It, of course it's religious. We're religious. That's just reality. I don't know how else to put it. Unless you mean religious as in religious, you know, people I hate. If that's how you mean religious, you're just redefining the dictionary. Uh, so good luck with that. But no, the, um, the idea though is that Christianity is a, an actual relationship with God. And so, so often we're telling someone about Christianity. I even do this with apologetics. I'm like, Christianity's true. Christianity's true. Well, that's just like a fact statement about reality. I'm, but I'm inviting you to a relationship with Christ. And that's the idea. A real relationship with God. A vibrant, actual, life-changing thing. So I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. The right hand here would be if they were in combat. Um, this is what one commentary I read was talking about. The, uh, the shield carried in the left hand the sword in the right hand, the guy on your right is your shield guy, right? Because you can defend this side real well, but not this side with your, your shield. So the guy on your right is, is a protector for you. So he's your right-hand guy. He's the one you're trusting, you're depending on to keep you alive in the battle. And so he says, because God's at my right hand, I'm not going to be shaken. Shaken here may refer to like the sense of confidence or trust that he's going to have in God. I'm not going to be moved, one translation puts it. Then in verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. There's just an incredible sense of security that he has that we should, we should want to have as well. I think we do want to have it. But if we walk through these truths in Psalm 16, you might find yourself in a greater place of that security. Walk through them, see how they relate to your life. 
Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path, the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This phrase, um, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. I already told you what Sheol means earlier. You know, this idea of, uh, of death. Some think it's the physical grave. Others that it, sometimes it seems to refer to that. Other times it refers to like where you go after you die. Um, and so he's like, I'm not going to be abandoned to that. And you won't let your Holy One see corruption. This could also be translated, Holy One see the pit. Now, one little thing to note is that in verse 8, God is at his right hand. But in verse 11, he's at God's right hand. That's interesting, huh? I just want to point that out. Let's keep this in mind because it's going to be something interesting to remember when we get into the Messianic side, which will be just a couple minutes here. Um, So verse 10 is generally seen by people as poetic. And this is where a lot of the controversy is going to lie. They're going to say, um, this doesn't mean I'm going to die and come back or that Jesus is going to die and come back. That's not what it means, that, that he won't experience corruption in the grave, staying in the grave. It doesn't mean that. Instead, many people will say, it just means I won't die prematurely. So like David's facing something in life and his life is in danger and he's thinking, I won't die right now. But he, of course, knows he's going to die eventually. And I think that there's clear elements in the text that seem to go beyond this. I think what we're doing is we're saying it's poetic. We're sort of softening the meaning of the words themselves because on their plain reading, he's talking about, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm going to be in your presence forevermore where there's pleasures. This seems to be talking about an afterlife that's much more glorious than this one. That seems to be the plain reading of it. Um, It could be taken to refer to death and life after that in God's presence, in other words. David didn't seem to think that he was in God's presence in such a strong way as he does in verse 11 where he talks about pleasures forevermore, fullness of joy, which I take to be a description of being really, truly, fully in his presence. And eventually, David does get abandoned to Sheol on that theory. Yeah, he's not going to abandon me to Sheol. I mean, yet. And then David gets older and dies. And there you go. He's abandoned to Sheol. And this is one interpretation of the passage. Um, so David's using some kind of hyperbole. He's just really exaggerating. It's very poetic. Um, and I think the, there's a better answer. And so I'm going to read a section of um, Michael Brown's book, um, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 3, page 115 and 116. This is a section from that book on this issue. What is he talking about when he's like, abandoned to Sheol, not let your holy one see corruption? What is this about? Is it about Jesus? He says, The biblical scholar J.A. Alexander observed, The text does not say that God will not leave him in the place of the dead, Sheol, but rather that God will not leave him to that place. And that's the word that's actually used there. God will not leave him him to that place, meaning abandon to, give up to the dominion or possession of another. And this is reinforced by the next phrase, namely that God will not let his faithful ones see the pit, meaning see the corruption and decay of death. This seems to indicate more than you will keep me from dying prematurely. In fact, some of the traditional Jewish commentators, including Rabbi David Kimchi, interpreted David's words in verse 9, my body rests secure. Um, that In verse 9, in our translation, that is, um, my flesh also dwells secure. So David, Rabbi David Kimchi, he's a Jewish rabbi, he's not a Christian. He's interpreting it as, uh, and he's a traditional, by the way, he's traditional. He's someone you could quote as a source here. Um, to mean that when the psalmist dies, his body will not decompose. 
That's interesting, huh? So there'll be a death, but the body won't decompose. They're looking, in other words, at David's doing, what he's saying is about his death and what happens next. And they're trying to understand what that means. So um, he goes on, as Rosenberg and Zolotowicz explain, the Talmud points out that seven biblical heroes were preserved whole in the earth. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, and Benjamin. Regarding David, this is a difference of opinion as to whether the expression, my body, includes David among the others, which would make it eight, um, or that David's prayer was wishful thinking. Either way, the, I mean, you go, that's interesting interpretations. I'm not saying they're uh, correct views. What I'm saying is we have rabbinical interpretations. Rabbinical interpretations that are saying David's talking about what happens after he dies. And to them, the two options, these guys, their two options are, yes, either David's body was preserved from decay after his death, or it wasn't preserved, in which case he was wishful thinking that it would be. Either way, that's what he's saying in the passage. So I'll read on now from Dr. Brown. He says, how interesting, even the Talmud takes up the question of exactly what David meant in some of these important phrases, while other traditional sources interpret the expressions to allude to immortality. This emphasis on the future life seems to be confirmed by the closing verse of the psalm, speaking of the path of life, God's presence, perfect joy, and unending delights. As Rashi explains, and he is a very authoritative Jewish commentator, um, Rashi, who I'll quote a little bit later, this guy is considered so respected in the Jewish communities, they print his commentaries with the Jewish Old Testament today. They just print them with them. So he's considered a highly respected uh, uh, medieval or uh, Middle Ages uh, Jewish scholar. So Rashi explains, endless joy, that is the joy of the future. The joy of the future. So this is Jewish support for the idea that this um, would be more like a reinterpretation. To turn Psalm 16 into just sort of this poetic hyperbole where David's not really talking about what it looks like he's talking about in the passage. And so I like when the Jewish commentators can come along and support the Christian messianic interpretation. That's always convenient. Um, in Psalm 49.9, we get the same kind of concept. It says that he should live on forever and never see the pit. This is interesting because it's about never seeing the pit. Never see the pit. Let me read the whole passage in context because this is a, it's almost like New Testament teaching. We're reading here in the Old Testament. Psalm 49 verses 7 through 15. I'll read this whole section to you. It says, truly, no man can, can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. You can't buy your own eternal life. That sounds like good, good Christian teaching, doesn't it? You can't buy your own eternal life. You don't have the funds in your account, right? You don't have the funds, so to speak. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they, um, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Salah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. They're appointed for Sheol. The domain of Sheol will control them. Think of now Psalm 16 in context of this. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me. 
there are those who teach that the, um, in the Old Testament, they didn't even have a concept of an afterlife. Verses like this stand completely in refutation of those kinds of statements. Yes, they're going to die. They're going to be stuck in the pit, but I'm going to get out. God's going to ransom my life and give me eternal life. There's a, a, a future eternal life that's available for some and not others because of their relationship with God. And you can't get there on your own. Your good works won't do it. You can't ransom your own soul. This sounds just like Psalm 16. Here's another psalm for you. Um, psalm 16, uh, 17, not too far from Psalm 16, actually, pretty close, close neighbor. Psalm 17, verses 14 and 15 says, uh, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Excuse me, he, he's saying, save me from them, deliver me from these men. Um, and the problem with these men is their portion is in this life. Their portion's in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. I think the idea that they're satisfied with children is really interesting. I think the idea here is they realize they're going to die, and they're just, all they get is to pass it on to their kids, but they have no real future hope for themselves because they've been rebelling and living against God. So there's no future hope with them. They're okay with the idea of dying and leaving an inheritance because that's the closest thing you have to hope when you don't have eternal life in your future, is just handing it off to your kids one day. But verse 15 says, as for me, I, he won't just die and pass it on to his kids. He goes, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I'm not just satisfied with passing an inheritance. I'm satisfied with you, God. So this, I think, is the context of Psalm 16. I think it's, I think it's going to be messianic. It's about eternal future life. And now let's go back through it. This is the, big, the messianic rundown. Psalm 16, um, starting in the intro to the psalm, Psalm 16, verse negative one, right? A miktam of David, a miktam of David. The, the idea that this is about David is significant because there's a huge connection between David and Jesus in the Old Testament. We've already did, I did a whole study on Jesus and David and how David is a type of Christ. And I'll put a link in the video description for that, for those who want to check it out. But a few points here is David... Um, He's the king. He's like the ultimate quintessential king of Israel. He's the example for all the kings to be compared to. And the future coming king is going to be a son of David. Jesus is the king, the ultimate king. And so, of course, he relates to the ultimate king of the Old Testament time. In genealogy, David is the last touch point for what we'll call genetic prophecy, right? The Messiah is going to come through Abraham. The Messiah is coming through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through David. And there you go. So that, so that we're left with the Messiah is coming through David. He's, he's, the, he's the successor of David. And he's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to rule over the kingdom of David. He's going to fulfill the promise of God to David. There's all these different connections in the Old Testament. In fact, by Jesus' time, son of David is a messianic title. If you call someone son of David, you're saying they're the Messiah. It's that closely identified with David. Nine times Matthew alone ties Jesus to David nine times in the in the gospel of Matthew. Psalm 22 is interesting um, because in Psalms, David speaks sometimes about himself, but because this, the son of David, this coming one, is like David so much that it relates to, it relates to Jesus. So Psalm 22 is an example of that. It's um, adopted by Jesus in first person on the cross, written by David about... I think about Christ and about what ultimately Jesus was going through. But Dave, uh, David wrote it, Jesus quotes it like it's about himself while he's on the cross, fulfilling the very things that are written there. 
Okay, so the verse 1, here we go, 16 verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. From Jesus' perspective, if we read the psalm again now looking at Jesus, it makes more sense than it did with David. And we have less struggles with the way it's written at the end as well. It's interesting. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. From Jesus' perspective, this is him on the earth in a situation of dependence, of dependence on the Father. How he came and he humbled himself and was obedient even to, the death on, even to death on the cross. And so he's dependent on the Father to preserve him. A place of dependency. Just think of the, the, the humility of Christ to come and condescend in such a way. The Son is trusting that even in his death, the Father will preserve him. And that's the whole idea of the psalm, isn't it? Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So he has total de- dedication to the Father's will. He sought... Uh, nothing else as if it was good throughout his, in- his entire life. This is more true of Jesus than it is of David, who made mistakes and failures and fell back and this and that. Christ did it consistently. I have no good apart from you. I won't even call it good if it's apart from you. I, I just want you. I want to seek you and serve you. In verse 3, he says, As for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. I mean, this is why Jesus came, to rescue you and me, to make us saints to make us the holy ones of God. And of course, where all his, his delight is in us, he's willing to suffer such great things for us. It makes more sense with Jesus than it does with David. Verse 4. It says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Jesus he wouldn't offer their offerings. He would offer himself. He would offer himself. And so the whole idea of a cup of blood is, makes so much more sense with Christ. What's interesting is that some scholars, uh, at least one I read, said that they can't find where these pagan people were using cups of blood that they would drink as part of their offerings. They won't take up these, these, these cups of blood. And they, not that they didn't use blood. They used blood. He's talking about in a cup. I don't know if they did or not. I mean, I think that the psalm seems to be evidence that they did. <laughs> like here we have an ancient Near Eastern documents suggesting that they did. But, um, but Jesus, with him, it makes even more sense because he, he, before his death, he takes up the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. So this is, um, this is uh, interesting. He also says here in verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. Remember this idea of holding my lot is like, you're taking care of that inheritance of mine, so I know it'll be ready for me when the time comes. I mean, this is Jesus during his incarnation. Before the incarnation, he's the ruler of the universe. In his incarnation, he comes as a servant. After his death and resurrection ascension, he inherits the thing, all things again. And so he's holding his lot. The Father's literally holding his lot. Let me read it to you from the psalm. Psalm 2, verses 5 through 11. It talks about the whole condescension and elevation of Christ. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's equal with God, but he gives that up. He sets that aside, I should say. And he then uh, comes in that human form. So though he's the ruler of all things, yet he comes in this lowly form. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted 
him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and all and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's now big boss again is the idea. He's, he's once again restored to that place. Hebrews 1-2 puts it this way. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. The heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So by right of creation, everything belongs to Jesus. And by right of redemption, everything belongs to Jesus. So he, um, he had that experience that works really well with the psalm. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Well, doesn't he though? I mean, all things. Yes, those are pleasant places. It's everywhere and it's all things that belong to Christ. Romans eight seventeen relates this to us though. It says that if we're children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So that that we're heirs too, we inherit all things as well. But it's in Christ we do. He inherits it by nature of his who he is. We inherit it by nature of who he is, and we're in him. And um, yes, verse seven. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night my heart. Uh, night also my heart instructs me. And again with David, this is a little confusing because it's like talking like he's receiving special words from the Lord on a regular basis or something like that, which we don't generally see in the life of David. Even when God speaks to him, he's doing it through like Nathaniel or he's doing it through the high priest. It's not like these special words from God. So you're like, David, how can I make this work so that you're not hearing from God like the way that it looks like you are? But with Jesus, it just works. Yeah, he's in communion and fellowship with God at all times. In fact, John eight twenty eight. It says, so Jesus said to him, said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the father has taught me. In fact, he said everything he did, he only did what the father showed him. So he's in constant revelation mode with the father. And that seems to fit here. Verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. Verse eight, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And so Jesus, constantly living for God, constantly living for the Father, constantly the Father there at his right hand, uh, whether this is to guard and protect him at times when people were trying to kill him prematurely, in this case, um, that to keep that from happening, that this is that constant, perfect, faithful relationship with the Father that works in verse 8 perfectly with Jesus. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. That idea of dwelling secure, and Michael Brown alluded to this in the quote I share with you guys. It could refer to when my flesh dies. It's lying there, resting in the peace of death or whatever, but with security. That even in death I have a security. It could refer to that, and that makes sense with Christ, of course. Verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now this is where the New Testament comes in and quotes this psalm and references it to Jesus. Specifically, hey, this is about this is about Christ. In Acts 13, 35, Paul does it. It says, therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. And he's saying, that's why Jesus rose. Because the Father's not going to let that happen. But let me read to you another section. This is a section of scripture from Acts chapter 2. This is where Peter quotes the psalm, using it as a messianic psalm. And this is where I think a lot of times we get a disservice even in our commentaries. Um, if you guys like reading the commentaries and footnotes and stuff in, in the Bibles, that are printed with them often, um, I think this psalm is stronger than people realize in its presentation of the death and resurrection of Christ. 
So let me read to you now from Acts 2.24. Here's what Peter says about it. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Notice what he said in verse 25. David says of him, of him, of who? Jesus. David says of Jesus. That's Peter's explanation here. Verse 26, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, knowing that there was this like rabbinical debate about David, was he included? Did David's body never decay? Like this is how some rabbis were thinking Psalm 16 would play out. Oh, maybe his body never decayed. His body's preserved perfectly like the other seven, which isn't necessarily a biblical thing, but that's a rabbinical thing they thought, right? Um, And so you could see Peter interacting with these thoughts. And he says, I'm telling you, he died and he was buried and we got his tomb with us to this day. Like it didn't work for David. Psalm 16 didn't apply to David, did it? Not in the way you're thinking. Verse 30, he says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, as in David understands, there's a typological and prophetic connection with his life and the Messiah. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, Peter says of Jesus, Remember in the psalm, during the life of Christ, if we follow the psalm in a messianic way, he says, God's at my right hand. But then after the death and resurrection, we have, I'm at God's right hand. And what does he say about Jesus? Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It seems, it seems clear that he thinks this is about Jesus. He thinks it's about Jesus, and I think we have a strong case to support it through just examining the text and comparing it to Christ. We see um, how prophecy here can be somewhat hidden, but not completely, and they're even scratching their heads on how to understand it when it's just the life of Jesus we're talking about, so that some say, well, he was just talking about a premature death, yet that's not like what it actually says. That's like a poetic understanding about hyperbole, but if you just take it at face value, it sounds like it's about Christ. Um, Also note this, that at the climax of the psalm, like the highest point of the Christology of the psalm, is where he talks about you won't let your holy one see corruption. Because holy one is like a title that's just just heavy with messianic implications. But it's also the only time in the psalm where it's not first person. It's always I. I will. I will. I am. I experience this. This is going to happen for me. But then when he gets to this great climactic moment, he just says, you won't allow your holy one to see corruption. And you can almost see the idea that David's going, my future eternity is because God's holy one will be risen from the dead. Which is like what we call Christian theology. <laughs> you know, that my salvation and my future life is in his life. Our life is in his life. So there's a, a little debate or a little possibility here of, um, are these one, is it one person or two people being mentioned in the Psalm in verse 10? Um, my, you won't let my soul You won't leave my soul to Sheol. You won't allow your holy one to see corruption. Is that two different things or is it one person? If it's two people, then it could be that David is the reference, my soul. My soul won't stay in Sheol because the holy one, Christ, will will not experience corruption. Um, 
in that case, the phrase your holy one is meant to grab you and change your view of this psalm. If it's one person that's being written of here, which is actually where I would in, be inclined to think, then David's writing here as like a type of Messiah, as he does in Psalm 22. It's like typological. You know, he's writing in first person, but it's ultimately about Messiah. David being kind of that representative. Um, the ultimate my soul is Messiah. The ultimate holy one here is Messiah. And further, David's own future is wrapped up in this one. And so as he writes of himself, that's where his hope is for his future. Then in verse 11 of the psalm, it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The path of life here seems to involve a trip to Sheol, but not for corruption, for deliverance. And then he knows the path of life. Now this is where I want to get really briefly uh, into the topic of the resurrection um, in the Old Testament. Because I've read, I don't know how many times, commentators or even heard leaders say it, that the resurrection is only mentioned in one verse. And if if you get to where um, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus died according to the scriptures, he's buried according to the scriptures, and he rose on the third day according to the scriptures, and you look at your little footnotes in your Bible, they'll often point you to Psalm 1610. But they often won't point you anywhere else. And so it sort of leaves you thinking that there's, oh, I guess that's all we got. We just have one verse that talks about the resurrection. Uh, but in my own studies on like prophecy and stuff, I will just say briefly, Isaiah 53 seems to clearly indicate the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 22, like carefully study the passage, like he dies and then he's alive and then he has this huge posterity and then everybody knows his name and he's experiencing the benefits of the, of the thing that he did, he accomplished in death. Like this is Psalm 22. It seems to be showing the resurrection of Christ as well. And these are the great cross passages where they so clearly speak of the cross of Christ. And here there's the resurrection as well. Also in pictures, we have like Joseph, right? Who is like dead and then alive again to his father. We have Isaac, who is brought up onto Mount Moriah, and there he is going to be killed. And he thinks, well, God will bring him back. And God's using this to draw a picture of what Messiah will do. And so the resurrection of Christ is in, I think, prophecy, as well as in the pictures and the foreshadowing. And then um, he's exalted in verse 11. Um, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, just to remind us. Verse 8, God's at his right hand. That's during Jesus' life. Verse 9, he's exalted to God's right hand. That's the consistent teaching of the New Testament that Jesus is now at the right hand of God, right, of the Father. So here's a pro tip for looking for messianic psalms. When the psalm makes more sense with Jesus than it did with the original author, it's about Jesus. That's, that's the pro tip. And that's, as you read through it, and you're like, wow, this... It makes more sense. We don't even know what in David's life this is about. And he seems to speak beyond his own experiences to something much more lofty than what he experienced at any point it, because it is very much, it seems, what Jesus experienced. This is, this is not some new Christian thing either. Um, in uh, Rashi, that same uh, rabbi that I told you about, he comments on Psalm 22, the crucifixion psalm, and people are like, well, it's about David. It's not about Jesus. And this is the criticism. The Jews know it's about David. It's not about Jesus, you Christians trying to steal their Bible. Um, but, but no, this thankfully is not the case. Rashi, who's writing hundreds of years ago, he's writing in the Middle Ages, one of the most respected Jewish commentators among Jews throughout history, if not the most, if not the most. He says about Psalm 22, it was because of the ordeal of the son of David. Who's that? The Messiah, right? He knows who that is. That's the Messiah. It was because of the ordeal of the son of David that David wept, 
saying, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You've laid me in the dust of death. Even Rashi says it, right? There's no Christian motivation here. He's just like, I'm reading the text. I'm looking at the prophecy. I'm looking at the whole flow of the teaching of scripture. Yeah, David here sometimes speaks of himself because of what the son of David will accomplish. And I'd say Psalm 16 is one of those situations. So um, application of, of all this stuff. Jesus in the Old Testament, I, it's been my favorite thing in the world to, to do this series. My favorite teaching series ever has been the Jesus in the Old Testament series. That's why I want to come back to it every once in a while. Do another one, throw another one in there. But Jesus in the Old Testament, if legitimate, it means that God inspired the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Think about the implications of this. Like if this is legitimate, if this is legitimate literary planning in the scriptures, then it means that God inspired this because certainly this wasn't done with, with human hands on purpose with over 40 different authors written over such a vast period of time. Collusion wouldn't have even have been possible. It also means something else, that Jesus really is the central message of the Bible. He really is the central message. Like this is, you know, when he says it's all written about me, like guess what? It's all, it's all written about him. That's the idea. And it also means, therefore, that this whole gospel of Jesus Christ thing is true. Now, I don't know how long you'd sit someone down to walk them through the typology of every kind of thing, but uh, maybe you could forward them the series if it would be a blessing to them. But when you see this stuff in its whole, when you zoom out and you look at it one after another after another, and you can't do this with any other historical figure. You can't just try to plug, you know, whoever you want. You pick the president you want to plug into the old, the old and New Testaments. You just can't do it. You can find one weird colloquial, one weird thing that you'll find to apply, but you're not going to see him throughout the scriptures like we do with Jesus Christ and affirmed by even Jewish commentators who didn't believe in Jesus. I think that's pretty powerful. And finally, the last application is this, is that with David, because of Jesus, we have hope beyond death. And so I can say, like the psalm does, like, Lord, preserve me in the pain and the hardship and the stuff that's too overwhelming for my heart to even think about. I can just place my trust in you because in you I have a refuge because I will see your face because there are pleasures forevermore and I will be with you and it's all about that let's pray Father we ask that um, you give us hearts of wisdom hearts of wisdom and the self-awareness to know when, we, when we're overwhelmed um, and we need to just fall onto you, onto who you are and to trusting you that we would have you as the one preserving us because you are our refuge Lord and we say here with the psalmist, um, we say here with David, we say, you are my Lord. You're my Lord. And I trust you. And in that, Lord, we, we find our, uh, our peace grows and our comfort. And it puts the word eventually at the end of all of our, our trials and our suffering and our hardships. And it, and, and it ends our story with endless joy endless joy in your presence so we love you we thank you for the revelation of christ in your word we thank you for psalm 16 and getting to go through it and uh, we just pray that you would be glorified in our lives by our confidence in you in jesus name. amen